Today's episode of the BS Podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network brought to you as always by ZipRecruiter. You know, it's not smart. Trying to figure out the MVP odds. We're going to do that anyway. It never goes that well, but we're going to do it later in this podcast. You know what else isn't smart? Job sites that overwhelm you with tons of the wrong resumes. Luckily, there's a smart way at ZipRecruiter.com slash BS. They find the right people with the right skills for your job. They actively invite them to apply. You get qualified candidates fast. They're the best at this. Right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash BS. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Meanwhile, SeatGeek, the best app for buying and selling tickets to sporting events, concerts, and more. $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase for any game or sporting event. That covers all the baseball, football, basketball, hockey, even soccer this month. Use promo code BS. Download the SeatGeek app or go right to SeatGeek.com. Don't forget about the Halloween Unmasked podcast. Episode three went up on Monday about Michael Myers. Episode four coming on Thursday. And don't forget about the Ringer Preview Palooza, Tuesday, October 15th. I am about as excited about this as I've been for anything we've done at The Ringer. It is a whole day of content on Twitter, on Instagram, on YouTube, all over the place leading up to our live watch of the first two games. I am going to be involved in that live watch. Sixers Celtics on Tuesday. Follow TheRinger.com and all of our social feeds for all the information you need about that. Coming up, we're going to figure out the MVP with Kevin O'Connor and Ryan Rossillo. Who is winning in 2019? I have no idea. And then after that, John C. Riley. I don't know how we got him. Been trying to get him for years. He finally came on a really great conversation about uh, his career, Paul Thomas Anderson, working with the Step Brothers crew, McKay and Farrell, uh, what it means to be an actor in 2018, all that stuff. That is all coming up next. First, Pearl Jam. <laughs> All right. Hey, it's Bill Simmons. It's Kevin O'Connor. What's up? We borrowed Ryan Rossillo. How was, how was everybody? <laughs> <laughs> we, uh, we're taping this for Wednesday's BS podcast. We're just doing MVP odds. 2019. This is the first year, fellas, in um, I don't know how many years that I have no idea who's going to win the MVP. I don't even have a really strong opinion but the last 24 hours, I feel like I'm forcing myself into one. But KFC, you start with us. Are you forcing yourself into Giannis? Because he seems I to be I feel like I'm forcing myself Giannis's way. Talk me out of this, Rosillo. It depends on what they do. You know, it's it, like when I started thinking Anthony Davis, like Anthony Davis, somebody the last couple of years where I go, you know what? I really want to pick him and then go on Mike and Mike and really stir the pot. And then yeah. Golick picked him. And I was like, oh, maybe I'm now I'm not going to pick him because it was like, I thought I was doing he something. He picked special. him this year? No, it was two years ago. Oh. So then, but then I started thinking about it. Like, there's no way he's going to win as a seven and eight seed. He's, no. he's just, you, that's not the way the voters work. I think the most important thing to do when you try to figure out who's going to win the MVP, MVP voters vote for the story over everything else. And once you're kind of old news, they're just not going to vote for you again. When Curry and those guys blew the 3-1 lead, I was like, he'll never. I said it immediately on the radio show. I guess he's never going to win an MVP again. And it's impossible, too, because you'd have to compare him against that insane 70-plus win season. So when I go through all this, if we start with just Giannis, 
Good narrative. Is, is good he, story. Good story. Who else? We're sick of these other guys. Okay, fine. But the Bucks, like they've got to be pretty good. I'm not saying they have to be a one seed in the East, but they have to be contending all year long at top for him to I, win it. You know, what he was just talking about, this happened. I did a whole chapter in my book about MVP and some of the biggest travesties they've had. People get tired of people. The voters get tired. I, one of the best examples ever was Jason Kidd. Remember that year? It was like, did my phone just do that? Yeah. That That's a cool weird. noise, though. How do I do that? I like that noise. I'm going to get rid of that. What alert is that? Remember that year, Jason, it was like Jason Kidd or Duncan. Who's the MVP? And it was clearly Duncan, but people were making the Jason Kidd case. Kidd finished second. Then the next year, he was like ninth with the exact same season. <laughs> right. And they went to the finals again. It was, another right. one was Carl Malone in 97. That's where everyone talked themselves in the, Jor- in the Jordan. And then in 98, people were like, F Carl Malone, he's out. He's out of the family. We're not voting for him again. Yeah, that was another example the, last year. That could be James Harden this year, right? I mean, he could right. put up essentially the same exact statistical season that he did last year. But I think there was Harden fatigue even before he won MVP. I have Harden fatigue right now, and he hasn't even played basketball in four months. You know what I don't <laughs> want to watch this year is four guys spread out as he does this thing for six months. I'm no, sorry. watching it live is, is both incredibly impressive because you can't believe how efficient he is. On shots, there's still contested shots. You don't know what he's going to do. But also watching it live is so boring. Because you just go, I'm incredibly impressed with what you do. It's exceptional. But it's also just like, all right, here we go. I mean, here's the thing. I can't believe every Vegas odds that have come out. And I think the ones you sent us to us, they have Harden as the second favorite behind LeBron. I wish I could I wish I could short that. Because there's no no way. Now, it took them longer than people thought. You know, this whole argument that he should have, you know, won it against Westbrook, I understand. The one against Curry, I, I, I don't side with. But the last thing we saw from him was missing shots for four straight hours of game time. Yeah, they're, they're, the voters are not going to vote for him again after they just gave it to him. So Harden is way too high on all these Vegas odds for MVP. Well, he's okay. fourth for what it's worth. He's Bob, fourth? It's, it's LeBron, Davis, Giannis, Harden. Harden's, yeah, the, fourth. The way it's formatted is... Oh, uh, yeah. all right. Yeah. They did it left to right. Fourth yeah. is still too high. Kawhi so right should now, be ahead of him. Top no five right him. now is LeBron is basically... Plus yeah. 333, which is weird. Anthony Davis plus 450. Giannis plus 500. Harden plus 650. Kawhi plus 950. Duran is a, is 10 to 1. Kawhi I, should be ahead of Harden. Like, that's my first one. I, Every time I've seen it, I go, no way. Kawhi should maybe be second or third because, as you mentioned earlier, right. the way voters vote, narrative matters. And with Anthony Davis, at best, what are Pelicans? Six, seven seed at best, probably. Whereas Toronto. If Kawhi stays healthy over the course of the season, Toronto could push for the one seed. So one thing with him, changing teams. I can't remember somebody changing teams and then winning the MVP the next year. The the furthest I go back, Moses Malone. Barkley. And Barkley. Phoenix. So those are the two times in 35 years. You're talking about... Was that part of the kid narrative, though, of him coming? That's obviously part of why he finished second. It was a little bit. I said that wasn't a good year. There weren't a lot of good candidates. But, you know, Moses was the 12th best player of all time. Barkley's the 19th best player of all time. So for Kawhi to do that, you're talking about peak years from two of the best players ever. So Kawhi would have to go to Toronto. They won 59 games last year. They'd have to, that would have to bump up to like 63, 64. He would have to be first-team All-NBA. Right there, I have an issue because is he a better forward than Durant and Le- or LeBron this year? Is he going to be first-team All-NBA over either of those guys? If everybody's healthy, it's hard to imagine that Can't that's going to happen. Can't imagine. So 10-1, to 1, I think, is nice value. 
But you're betting on Toronto going like 67 and 15. And on him to stay healthy. Which- No guarantee. There's a case to be made that Toronto actually could be better this year. I don't personally see it, but I've heard the case. You think the win thing, though, would play into that? Like they have to have more wins and be the one seed for Kawhi to win I think that'd be the one seed. Yeah, or maybe even home court. Just think how 80 games plays out, where if they just- It's the same record, but they're good. We're like, man, there's a toughness about them that they've never had before. Like we'd start saying some of that stuff- and I like the way I would look at this first is I would start with how, you know, I don't whatever direction you guys want to go in, but I would start figuring out like I think the we should cross off. Yeah, and the narratives of how we would eliminate guys. Like LeBron wins it if they're a higher seed than we expect. There's all these awesome stories every week where yeah. it's like he's such a great teammate. Oh my and god. And all these things like Josh oh, Hart yeah. said he's changed his life. <laughs> LeBron yeah, evolving his game, playing more off ball. Beasley's yeah. eating kale. No, you here, know? so here's the case for LeBron. <laughs> this is the most athletic team he's been on maybe ever. I, you'd almost have to go back to the two thousand the first heat season, just that he had Bosch and Wade in their prime still. And that, you know, on fast breaks, remember some of those three on twos? And it's like, mm-hmm. um, but for the most part, the last six, seven years, he's had to, he's been surrounded by these shooters who aren't athletic. He doesn't have like guys who are above the rim, guys taking off. I think they're going to play with pace. And he's got all these toys. And he's got Lonzo as kind of his passing sidekick. Um, Ingram running the floor. Kuzma running the floor. He's got Rondo out there throwing. I think that team's going to run and be fun. And that might invigorate him. So I think that's the case. I mean, like we talked about this before. I think the Lakers are going to be really good this year. I do too. I think they could crack 50 wins. Their over-under is 48 and a half, which seems just, I almost feel like LeBron would have to get hurt for them not to get that. You know that you just said something though about them playing with pace and how they keep saying it as if like LeBron's been this guy that the offense is- Didn't want to do it. He wants to run this dissecting slow offense. So whenever whenever I see this stuff of oh they're gonna they're gonna run they're gonna run they're gonna run okay but he has to initiate that I mean that's on him he's he's been really good at doing it the way he wants to do it but I think you would agree when you look at sure. everywhere he's gone he'd rather back it out and just figure out where your help is so far though this preseason so far at least he's been really a, an example of how to push the pace really moving the ball up the court either with his dribble or with the pass outlining. And when he doesn't have the ball, actually sprinting up the court, will he continue doing that? We'll see. But Against so, Perth, maybe. Can so I, far, though, he is. As I so often do, I, I'm going to bring Larry Bird into this. <laughs> Ryan, you remember this? You were a young pup in the streets of New Hampshire, wandering, New wandering, Hampshire. looking for an Equinox, Vermont. New Hampshire, where in New was, Hampshire, or Vermont. No, back then, New Hampshire, uh, Connecticut, or Mass. All right. Yeah. So Larry Bird, last two years of his career, Chris Ford comes in. And they're like, we got to get more athletic. Yeah, we got to go yeah, fat. Yeah, yeah. So they bring in, they drafted Brian Shaw, they had D Brown, they had Rick Fox, Easy Ed Pinckney. And like, we're going to run, we're going to run, we're too slow. It was like UNLV at the pro level. And, Bird, <laughs> and Bird embraced it. Bird's like, this is great. I have all these new toys. Let's go. And meanwhile, he's playing with like a 35 pound back brace. I think LeBron kind of wants to play this way. And this is the natural evolution of his career is easy baskets versus constantly doing this with the shooters around him. I, I, don't, I don't think that makes sense I, for him. I, I totally buy it. I mean, LeBron had a pretty good quote recently where he said, you know, you look at all the young guys on this roster, it would be stupid if we didn't play fast. So it you still be. think he's full of full of crap? I've just seen so many athletes, not that I'm going to out Celtic you here, yeah. but do you remember how bad the last stretch was offensively with Pierce and Tuan? 
just how oh. bad it was. It wasn't just their three-point shots, and not so much the ones Pierce took. But like, go back and look at three-point attempts all time in a season, and how many times Tuan was up there before we had this explosion. Like Antoine shouldn't have had. But the other thing he did, he was the real seven seconds or less, Antoine. But it was twenty-eight percent shooting from three. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the other thing is that like he and Paul early on were big-time complainers. Yeah. So one of the bigger issues was is it never felt like Tuan was getting back or didn't want to push. Like he didn't want to push it as much, yeah. even though he was this oddly talented player that's, if you looked at his paperwork now, you'd be like, anybody like this guy? And he did not when, the, survive the advanced metrics no, revolution no. very well. So when he locker. got traded back, remember how weird that was? They brought him back. Yeah, I liked he was, it. It was back for this little stretch. He was going to be super up-tempo guy for a really short amount of time. I remember watching it immediately because he was saying all the right things. And even after a make, He'd grab it, run to the baseline, and like inbound it to whoever, and then just get and start running. You're like, what are you doing? Like, yeah, this isn't It was this concerted effort to do that. And I just think, even though LeBron's saying all the right things, and it makes sense with that roster and all that stuff, I still think when he gets back to his comfort zone, he's the guy that wants it 30 feet away from the hoop. But do you think and his it's always comfort- worked too? So I'm not knocking it. It's just. I'll, but I'll was wait his to see. comfort zone like that because of the teams he was on? Because you got to think how many like, different coaches, though. All the different coaches. That's still always what he wanted to do. But did he always want to do that, or did they not have any other choice? I guess is my question. Because initially it starts out Wade and Bosch and no other teammates, and then they have to start adding these role players. Like they had Mike Miller initially, then Ray Allen and James Jones, and it's just easier to get those Eddie House types than it is to get athletes. Sure, goes to Cleveland. They bring in Kevin Love. They have Kyrie already. And then they're just bringing in vets because they're trying to win a title. This is totally different. To me, this is like maybe the kind of team he should have been on. And then you go back to the mid-2000s, late-2000s on Cleveland. They were always going old. They're always like Antoine Jameson, Ben Wallace, Big Jack, Elgoskis. He never had <laughs> yeah, the right teammates. <laughs> but in the All-Star game, it was always fun to watch him. But, or even in the Olympics. Like, oh, man, look at LeBron. Having a great time. I think that's part of the the commitment he made to L.A. where he's allowing them to continue building with a young team by not doing the one-on-one contracts where, yeah, they do have these young legs on the roster where they actually can play fast. But I do think, you know, to your point, Ryan, like LeBron has liked to play slow. It's always been his preference. But I, I, I feel like watching preseason, you can never read too much in a preseason, but he is playing fast. And he's made a consistent commitment after turnovers, after rebounds, and even after some makes to push the ball and play fast tempo. And even in the half court, he's playing at a fast tempo. They're running him through off-ball screens at times, using him in in unique positions. He's playing differently with this roster. And that's been exciting to watch. Less power cleans. He's been doing too. Right, no, he's slimming down. Okay, so I think we've we've nailed what the LeBron thing. He doesn't have to be a one seed. It it just has to be fun. It has to be deemed a success. That's that's pretty much it. I think he needs to get in the high fifties to win the MVP. You do. I think he has I to be. I'd so. say four seed or higher. So I, I don't know what that. Three seed, be. like fifty six to fifty seven wins. Well, I then think, I'm out. I think this season could be a year where we so, have like an MVP that wins forty eight games. Just feels like it could. You be think that if type the Lakers go fifty two and thirty, that's enough to win the MVP? What did Westbrook could win be. that year? That could be the three seed, like 54, 55? Uh when what the triple double season that we cared about and the other one we didn't care about God, um, remember those triple doubles <laughs> i remember that one time in memphis just was wanting him to get that 10th rebound so bad they're up 28 he was just throwing it off the backboard <laughs> against himself I'm so sorry. anthony davis we don't think he'd be high the good thing that davis has like i used to always think the heisman we were growing up because there wasn't any we just didn't have access to information is you had to have some sort of campaign there had to be a carryover that you were on the radar 
for you to even win the Heisman the next year. Yeah. And now what's happened with all this information, and if you come into the season in college football as the favorite, then you're never going to win the Heisman. It's bad. Because the expectations for you, you're held to a different standard. It's like than a star is born right now in the Oscars. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. You don't want to peak. T- you don't want to peak in October. <laughs> don't ruin the end. If I hear one more person say, "Oh my God, it's so see," it's, yeah, I almost did it to everybody yeah, here. Yeah, Millions. Uh, yeah. I keep hearing it too. It's like, geez, yeah, I'm just back off. The movie, man. Like, what if Davis? What if Davis was awesome in New Orleans for three months and then got traded to the Lakers or Celtics and then took <laughs> off even more? Nobody's ever won the MVP trading teams in the midseason. I would say it's more realistic for him to get traded than it is for him to win the MVP. There's Nephi Kyle over there. He's here in the flesh. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so. I think we're all on the same page with I that. Say but, no at least, on Davis. but at least he has the carryover hype from people starting to suggest he's he's one of the top three, if not at the time when he's playing against Portland and everything. You know, we started throwing around stuff like he's the best player in the league right now. Well, the stuff the the forty five and twenties and right. forty seven and seventeens. Like that was insane. <laughs> they, all right. I, mean, he, I don't he, I don't want to do Giannis yet. Harden, we're crossing off. We did. Are, are we writing off AD too early though? Well, from, from he, a statistical standpoint, if, he, if he's a defensive player of the year candidate, four se- did it have to be a four and, seed? And, and if he's putting up ridiculous offensive numbers, he's going to. I mean, it, who it, else it, is scoring on in that a team? year where maybe let's say the Bucks aren't what people expect them to be, or maybe the Lakers are like a six seed? I think there's a there's a way for Anthony if Davis to slip healthy, into that. Obviously, they're breaking one of my yeah. rules though. They're top four. I'm not sure three of the four can play together. I don't know if Meritich, Randall, and Davis can be on the court in the last five minutes of yeah, a game that's... together. Like who guards Jason Tatum or Brandon Ingram in that situation out of those three They're going to have Drew Holiday tackle that guy. In the two games they face the Celtics this I season. just think the West is too good, and I think that Pelicans roster is too weird for them to get to a four seed. I'm, I got to say I'm crossing them off. I'm crossing off Harden. I can't cross off Kawhi. Kawhi should be higher. I think those. I think that's good. I think that's a good number there. Plus nine fifty. I think that's a good bet. KD is ten to one. I don't see that hunger from him to win a second MVP. I don't. I I see a hunger for him to be a huge global uh, business person, to be a great player, to be on a great team. I think he's doing five, six, seven different things. I don't see any of those seven things like. I'm trapping myself in a gym and I'm winning the MVP this year. I don't see it. Do you guys see it? And not to mention last season, KD played hardcore defense for maybe two for weeks. For two months. Yeah, that's about it. Yeah, you know, he did it, November, December. It, he know, was going for defensive player of the year and then it stopped. And it's not only that, it's the fact that Stephen Curry is on the roster too. Yeah. And those guys kind of cross each other out, I think. I think it's almost too cushy. That I team, don't, how are you comfortable in six and a half week, months of it? How are you comfortable enough to already, the guy turned 30 a couple weeks ago. Yeah. Like you, you are already ready to say that he's like ready. Like, I mean, just because he has the other interests, you think his focus, his hunger is no. not there. No, no, you, no. You feel comfortable saying that. I'm not, no, I'm not saying the focus hunger isn't there. I'm just saying when you win the MVP, like when he won in 14, he was like. You're the real MVP. <laughs> when he won in 14, it was like. I want to win the MVP. That's the only thing on my mind right now. This is like, you're on this team that everyone thinks thinks going to make the finals. You're out there, you're doing all these different shows and you're traveling the world and all that stuff. Meanwhile, Giannis, I just look at him compared to Giannis. It's like the beginning of Rocky Three. Giannis is just in the gym. Giannis is like, I'm winning the MVP this year. I've got <laughs> I a real coach. Like, this sounds familiar. It it's sounds like, like a montage. He's like Clever Lang. He's just by yeah. himself in the like, This doesn't sound LA like gym. when the nerds clean the place up and paint it. It sounds like a different 80s movie. He's got a real coach. 
He's got a real coach who's going to play pace. Did you see those pace stats? Oh, yeah. I put those in my you articles put those in your thing. Yeah. Coach Buds. Top top 10 almost every year. I, look, yeah. if, if you tweet one more time about how excited you are about Buds' offense, be honest. <laughs> like, I'm gonna, the Bucks are going to get a restraining order on you. <laughs> <laughs> I've only tweeted it once. Retweeted really? it a couple right, of times. Well, it was impactful. Because when, when you sent it out, I was like, hmm, yeah. that's something to think There's about. There's some stuff yeah. to like about yeah. the Bucks this year because no Middleton's in a contract year. They went from the worst coach in the league to an above average coach. Giannis is saying and doing all the right things. And they're in a, the right conference. They're in a conference where one of these teams is going to jump and they are the best candidate, I think, to get to like a three seed. Can I propose Please. a conspiracy theory? Yeah. Ooh. Double agent. Giannis? Eric Bledsoe. Oh. <laughs> Clutch. Yeah. LeBron. Ooh. Like, hey, don't pass to Giannis a ton. We're winning oh, the MVP. scale it back a little? Yeah. <laughs> Double agent. <laughs> yeah. I like that you urinated on my KD is spread too thin with all these different things. And now you're calling Eric Bledsoe a double agent for clutch. <laughs> Bucks fans last season might agree with you. Just saying play. at the end. Yeah. Um, Here's Curry Durant. Probably it's just too, they're both the best part in that team. It's too hard to split. I, I don't see either of them standing out over the other to a degree that one would win the MVP, but the other wouldn't like the pack 12 vote. Embiid. He had to play 72 games. They'd yeah, have to win f- 60. I don't think it's a terrible call. No, I mean, it, it's not, healthy. Like, there's other ones I have a better argument against. I mean, if he continues to be the guy, and I think when you factor in the hunger, the they should be really pissed off about last year because that was ugly in the playoffs. And they should be like, pissed off that people are right. counting him out this year. Yeah, so I, I actually look at Embiid as somebody that I can – in my head, figure out that storyline a lot easier. Like yeah. there's less challenges there for him. He's not going to be held to a standard that he's already achieved. Okay, that's one. There's still a newness to this Sixers thing. That's fine. Um, even though they won all those games, especially at the end of the year when everybody's trying to lose, like the fact they ended up being a three seed, but they didn't go like far enough in the playoffs that you go, okay, this is this. Like I don't, I don't look at any part of them as any kind of disappointment because I was incredibly wrong because I just didn't think young teams that have never played together would have their kind of success. Like I, yeah. I thought they were sort of ahead of schedule. It's still his team. The other superstar is a very passive. Not to say that Simmons is like a beta guy, but he, like he's willing to defer to Embiid because we don't really know what his offense is right now. So I think there's a really easy way to figure. Like if we're sitting here halfway through the season going Embiid's dominating this league and he's totally healthy and they're a top two or top three seed in the East, that's totally realistic. From a talent standpoint, you go down the rest of this list and it's like Westbrook, Ben Simmons, Donovan Mitchell, Damon Lillard, Towns, Oladipo. I don't think Westbrook will ever win another one. No, none of those guys. Um, No, make the case for Kyrie, Ryan. So here's (laughs) the thing. You look at Kyrie not playing, you know, getting hurt, coming back. He's going to put up sick numbers. I understand that Tatum's development will take away some of his opportunities. Hayward being back, that's fine. Horford's, Horford might not take a shot the first month of the season. Right. Okay? <laughs> so there's a lot of other guys that I know that can get in the way of Kyrie's numbers, but he's still going to be getting you, I would imagine, 20-plus a game. It's Kyrie Irving. Yeah. And if they're the clear number one seed, and it's this redemptive Celtics, because even last year with them – you know, having the seeding that they've had the last couple of years, all of us knew it was a really fluky Celtics team as far as like, wow, this is a great story. This is incredible. Are they really this good? If they're a juggernaut version of everybody being healthy and they're the number one team in the East and it's clear like we all think they're going to come out of the East and the LeBron run is over and that Kyrie ended up winning the LeBron divorce in a way. 
which he, you could even argue he, he has. Well, no, he, he has to get out of the East for that to happen. So I don't want to yeah. go too far. But for him to be the ninth best odds, that to me is selling a Kyrie, the best version of the Kyrie story short. Well, and also if they're a one seed and they go 66 and 16, that's and what I mean. Just the best just, team. Right. Yeah. Somebody from this team is going to be an if, MVP if, candidate. He's the best bet. If there's a legitimate thought, whoa, this Celtics team could actually beat Golden State, then he can be the narrative MVP if there's no other standout. So what candidate. does a Kyrie MVP season look like? Because I think part of it has to be the Celtics just rolling through the league, which is possible with their depth. Um, I think they're going to potentially be up by like 25-30 in a lot of these games. They also have the Rogier smart thing where they could just be like, Kyrie, you're off tonight. Just take take the night off. We'll see you two days from now. But I think the right season for him, it would have to be super efficient. It would have to be like 25 a game. Like Isaiah Thomas. But a 50-40-90 type or 50-40-85, something like that. Um, not a lot of shots. Gets to the line. Just everything is just at the highest level. I don't – It's he's not going to average 30. You know, he's not going to be like a high volume, whatever. I think it would be almost like that LeBron season in 13, which I thought was his best season when he was flirting with 60% field goal for two, three months. Remember that? Yeah. It would have to be something like that where we're looking at the math of the Kyrie season and going, holy shit, look at Kyrie shooting 55%. He's a point guard. Other than that, I don't see it. I'm just not sure that's going to be enough because, you know, voters care about the win total, of course, as you mentioned earlier, but they also care about numbers. And if he's if he's 24 and six with super high efficiency, yeah, that'll be impressive. But I'm not sure it'll be enough to earn the votes. So let's go back to Giannis because that's the last thing. And then we'll what go. if Kyrie, though, helps get voter registration up? The state that of would help. <laughs> and, and a good DVD commentary on the uh, what was that movie called? Uncle Drew. A oh, hilarious DVD Celtic Blu-ray Pride? commentary. No, the whatever the when they kidnapped Damon Wayans. You don't talk about that movie a lot. You should do the rewatchables it's, it's on that. It's not great. I'll, I'm happy to do it with you, but it's not a great movie. No, I want to do Fear. <laughs> <laughs> I'm serious. You guys are laughing. It's a great one. Right. It's like, uh, <laughs> Why are you looking at me weird, Kevin? I'm, I'm, Kevin's I'm like, totally he I'm, I'm, I'm good. Uh, Giannis, <laughs> five to one. Yeah. What's the roadmap? So he averaged 26 a game last year, or 27, right? Mm-hmm. 27, 10, and 5 almost? Something like that, yeah. Now, if they boost the possessions up by, I don't know, if he's getting Three. six, seven more possessions a game potentially, is that uh, too many? Uh, Three? Yeah, too many. Four? Yeah. Call it four. Two more shots a game could he get? Depends on how the offense runs. I think it could be more come. Can he get to 30 uh, a game? I think it's for playmaking with him. Okay. I, I think that's what it could be. If they're running more pick and roll. So you'd be shocked offense. if he had 30 a game? Better space. I would. I wouldn't be shocked, but I, I think it's more the the gains could come in the assist column more than anything else. Thirty's tough. We can see we see twenty seven a lot. Thirty is another animal. I, I mean, think about it's the, really hard to get to thirty a game every night, night after night. It's twenty four hundred points. It, it's plus. it's doable though because with the floor spacing, it's going to be easier for him to get to the rim, easier for him to draw fouls, easier for him to finish, but also easier for him to kick out to shooters to Brook Lopez to Ursan Yelisova to Middleton. They don't have a lot. Why didn't of the Lakers sign Brook Lopez? Did we ever figure that out? Why know. isn't he on their team? Lopez is fine. It's a fine player. Would you rather have him or the freaking weirdos that? You, would you rather have him or Javale McGee? Probably rather have Brook Lopez. Yeah. Every time. Have you seen Javale McGee in the preseason? Is that a good thing or a bad thing? He was incredible that one night. It was wow. he, was he better than Kedrick Brown in 2003? He, he has been pretty good. I, I think with McGee, it's, you know, he still can't make that pass on the short roll. I'm looking which, at you know. some of the, not to stay on, 
on Kyrie here, but I wanted to double check because I think whenever you guys are referencing the the PER numbers for an MVP, like there's another tier. Yeah, it's high twenties. It, yeah, high twenties. And Kyrie last year in sixty games was at twenty five, and the numbers are pretty good. I mean, he was at twenty five a game. He was at almost fifty percent, forty percent from from the field in threes. Twenty five, six assists, four. But like, there's some decent numbers there. But like, that's where Giannis has the advantage here because I'm sure if I go back and find Giannis exactly well on the, the Giannis PR, the, the PR of, stuff yeah, yeah it's, it's going to be I don't yeah. think Kyrie can the touch that going this way. yeah in defense exactly. we've seen yeah, it over and over again with the best players <laughs> I will definitely defer to Giannis's defense <laughs> over Kyrie's well KOC you think they'll Although play Kyrie him played center? better D last year I thought Giannis yeah I think we'll see him in more lineups little small center. ball five but, but there's also there's the necessity to do that isn't there as much either that was yeah. one of the points in my article today where it's like well with Lopez and or Ilyasova, you can play big but continue to space the floor. Whereas last season with Milwaukee, the only way they could space the floor five out was Giannis at the five. They can yeah. continue to play big with Giannis at the floor. He's now. twenty-seven and ten five already. Yeah, one and a half yeah. boards, one and a half, or one and a half blocks, one and a half steals. The field goal percentage thing. Like if he starts hitting, like does he have to hit? An acceptable level of threes for us to like no, as voters. 32% is that. That's all you need. I think. But does it even matter though? What if he just no. doesn't take. Like, that's the thing I wonder about with him and the voters. If he just doesn't take threes and we're all so obsessed with it, if voters would hold that against him. Could which he seems to, stupid if the other numbers are this good and heading on that arc. Could he get to 30, 12, and six? It's not unrealistic. I think so. I mean, he's, he'd be my pick. So then he becomes this statistical thing, approval ratings through the roof. Like, there's no anti Giannis stuff. First this team is, all defense. This is, this is early Durant now. Yeah. When Durant was so popular because he was awesome and because he was Durant, but my theory, I don't even think it's a theory, it's fact, is that because he was the anti LeBron, then we all rush to be like, man, Durant gets it. Durant yeah. gets it. And Giannis He's is, loyal. He loves OKC, yeah. man. Giannis is... Yeah, he was, first of all, there was <laughs> a lockout coming, so he, no one knew what was yeah, going on. He never so, did the decision. All right, everybody decided to go, just I'm going to take every extension I possibly could. Like, the only choice Durant made was the one you had to make at that time. Um, he loves to hoop, man. Yeah. He just Gian, loves Giannis his city and basketball. Four years, 100 million. S- slight discount. Yeah. Yeah, we like discounts. Mm-hmm. Um, there's just no anti-Giannis stuff out there. There just isn't. No. So, that's, so that's a huge advantage for him. So we don't know who's going to win the MVP, but we do know what we think is the best bet. I say it's Giannis plus 500. KOC, what's your final pick for it's, best it's bet? Giannis. And Ryan, you go Kyrie plus 1,500? No, Giannis I'll plus go Kawhi. I'll go Kawhi at plus 950. That to me, there's again, to get caught up in the beginning when I screwed up the way this was formatted, but I'd seen mm-hmm. Harden fourth everywhere. So yeah. Harden should not be ahead of Kawhi. As an yeah. MVP odds. Fair. You're completely ruling out the fact that those voters that flirted with it before, maybe voted for him, thought they were wrong. Finally, he gets his MVP. And then we watched him miss shots for two straight games. What about There's, Blake Griffin, 225 to one? A lot of value. <laughs> that, a lot of Detroit value. Detroit gets to a three seed. Uh, all right. Check out Ryan Rasil on Dual Threat, his new podcast on The Ringer. It's check really out good. Kevin O'Connor on Tuesdays and Fridays. Yeah. On the Ringer NBA show, you named your Tuesday show the Mismatch. Oh yeah, that's probably going to be the name. I, th- I think we officially named it. You guys approved it. I just sounds like it, it just happened. Just named it right <laughs> cool, now. Cool, that's it. The Mismatch, mismatch. is great. Mismatch. We don't have a Friday pod yet. Yeah, we got to. And that then out. Uh, check out the Ringer MLB, MLB show this week. Me and Jacko will be on that one talking Red Sox Yankees. So until then, thank you guys. Let's talk about Hotel Tonight. Here's a little insider travel secret from our friends at Hotel Tonight. There are tons of empty hotel rooms out there just waiting to be booked. Hotel Tonight has partnered with these awesome hotels to let them sell 
They're unsold rooms, which means you get incredible deals. Forget scrolling through never-ending lists. Hotel Tonight shows you a select list of incredible deals at cool hotels they'll think you love. And they even give you short profiles of each hotel, complete with all the info you need and pictures of what the rooms really look like. And it's not just for last-minute bookings either. Book in advance, spontaneous weekend getaways, three-day weekends, staycations, road trips, business trips, whatever you want. I'm doing it this weekend because my daughter has a soccer game that's really, really far away. You know who's my friend in these situations? Hotel Tonight. Start scoring amazing deals at incredible hotels. Go to hoteltonight.com or download the app right now. Here it is, John C. Riley, who's in the studio yesterday, actually. Really fun interview. So glad we did this. Here he is. All right, John C. Riley is here. What an honor. You were always on the list. You don't do really? that much. Yeah, you don't do that much. Wow. I was. I think it's always funny when people say like, we wanted you for our movie, but we, we, you we didn't went with a John calls. C. Riley type instead. And I was like, wait, I was available. <laughs> would have come a long time ago. But I remember. Oh, thanks for having me, Bill. Oh, this is, I've been dying to do this with you. I remember at Grantland, we did a Boogie Nights oral history and we tried to get a hold of you and, and it was like, yeah, he doesn't really keep it unless he's. Yeah, I read that. Keeps low profile. I read it. It was good. It was. Yeah. It was fun. I don't know. Sometimes I feel like. It's it is just best to let the work speak for itself. Yeah, and yeah, I don't know. Especially Paul's movies. He and I had such an intense. We still do. We're, we're very close friends. But making those movies was such an intense, personal, uh, almost like a family effort. You know. Yeah. <laughs> so to talk about it after the fact, outside of it, I don't know. Every once in a while, I'll tell stories or something from from my experiences on those movies, but. Well, now, yeah. now that all these years have passed, it must be like uh, almost nostalgic. I mean, you see, Boogie Nights was now 22 years ago. Hard Eight, Heart Eight was 24 years ago. I must ago. be old. <laughs> I haven't counted lately, but, uh, you know, the funny thing about Boogie Nights actually is, th is that movie seemed like uh, nostalgic when it came out. Yeah. You know, because the way Paul shot it, it had this 70s look to the film and stuff. It seemed like an old movie already when it when it was a new movie. When you did Hard Eight with him, and that that was he talked about it when he was on here about you know you this dream to make your own movie and then the studios messing with it and doing all these things. But could you see the talent with him right away? Oh yeah, I can see the talent just from reading that script. Yeah, I mean it was really apparent. I was like, I I remember sitting down to meet with him because. He actually asked me to go to the Sundance Filmmakers Workshop with him, uh, which is this thing they do in, at Sundance where in the summertime where they give up-and-coming filmmakers a chance to work on a few scenes on video with professional people and sort of get their feet wet with the filmmaking process. Um, so I remember meeting with him when I was considering to do that. My first reaction was like, I'm not going to filmmaker boot camp. Like I already make <laughs> movies. Like I worked yeah. really hard to be able to make movies. Like I don't need to go to summer camp for filmmakers, which was a really stupid attitude to take. Um, and then I read Paul's script and I was like, Oh my God, like the guy's a total natural. Like, yeah. And I sat down with him in studio city when we first met and I was like, you don't have an agent. He's like, no, <laughs> no. I was like, man, wait till you get ready. Yeah, way through people start you know checking out your work, and that was before we shot anything. It was just what he'd written, but he's it was really clear from the very first time I met Paul 
and the very first time we worked together that he was a total natural. He already had everything operating, you know, all the different aspects of filmmaking. And uh, I don't know if he told you about this, but he he wrote this. He had an assignment when he was a little kid. I think he was eight years old. Yeah. And the assignment was go home and write uh, write what job you want when you grow up and why you should be hired for that job. <laughs> and he wrote in amazing handwriting for an eight-year-old, actually. It's like cursive writing. It says, my name is Paul Thomas Anderson. I want to be a writer, a director, and a special effects man. Hire me. I'm the man for the job. <laughs> when he's eight. I mean, I didn't, I, I was still like wondering what I was going to do for a living when I was finishing college. But yeah. Yeah. So Paul's a real natural for sure. That's, I mean, that's one of those cases where that, that cliched term, a natural, really, really applies. Where did you grow up? Where are you from? Chicago. I'm from the south side of Chicago. And then where'd you go? You went to DePaul, right? Yeah, I went to the DePaul. Right after basketball kind of turned for them? You weren't there for, <laughs> exactly. you there for Ray the Meyer, right? No, I think, I think Ray Meyer Jr. might have been there. Oh, the when Joey I was Meyer. There. Yeah. Oh, sorry, Joey Meyer. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but that was a whole other world to me. That whole DePaul, actually, I went to a thing called the Goodman School of Drama, which was like a, they later changed it, the name to the theater school at DePaul University when the Goodman family decided they didn't want their name associated with a Catholic university because <laughs> it used to be at the Art Institute, the Goodman School. But anyway, uh, yeah, so I went to this sort of conservatory program that was similar to um, like a Juilliard or one of those real professional training programs for actors. And uh, and we were our own little campus within DePaul. Yeah. So we would go and take academic classes and stuff there in order to get our degrees. But I was as <laughs> I was as far from DePaul basketball as <laughs> you could be while attending DePaul University. You were wearing the Mark Aguirre jersey around uh, classes. I just I wasn't really interested in sports at all when I was a kid. I just I wrestled when I was young and. Occasionally, like if a Chicago team was doing well, I would like pay attention. But when I was in college, I was like all acting all the time. I was studying theater history and I was just really immersed in the in trying to be an actor. You know, did you want to be like a theater actor or a movie actor? That was my plan. That's what I thought because I didn't have any reference points in my life for any. Like, I remember being a kid and going to see movies and just thinking, like, wow, Gene Hackman is is Popeye Doyle, you know, like, yeah, you just, I would watch them. I didn't even, I didn't know any actors. I didn't know any actors, let alone theater actors or let alone movie actors. So when I would watch movies, I'd be like, wow, I just completely buy the illusion. I didn't understand how it was all done and how it was made and that these people were pretending. I just kind of went there. And then I kept doing theater. I did a lot of musicals when I was a kid. And, um, and then all through high school, did community theater and that kind of thing. And then when I, when I went to college, I was like ready to try to be a serious actor, a dramatic actor, you know, like try to learn some of the stuff that, you know, because where I grew up on the South Side was all musicals and that kind of thing. It was yeah. no one was doing Shakespeare or Ibsen or, you know, or whatever, even any kind of dramatic plays. It was all sort of feel good sort of stuff. We doing great, improv but. there too cuz Chicago's such a big improv yeah, city. Yeah, that's exactly that's my first acting class at the at the Goodman was um or at DePaul was um was an improv class. And it was really when I really came to life and I realized like 
oh, like it can be this. Like, and it's funny because my first, the first acting class I ever went to when I was eight years old at the park near my house, Marquette Park, where I grew up, um, was improv based too. Yeah. The teacher was just having us do all these theater games. And then we took all these kind of improvised sketches that we'd done and turned them into a show called Comedy Tonight. <laughs> and so he did like sang songs from other musicals and like did these sketches. So it's funny that like these linchpin moments for me as an actor were were through improvisation, which was which is another way of saying like feeling empowered enough as an actor to feel like you have a voice. And what you have to contribute is just as valuable as a script or whatever, you know? Yeah. That's a big leap to make in, in your mind. And some of my best work has come with people that believed in me in that way. I remember Lasse Hallstrom was one of the first people. Uh, Brian De Palma, my first movie, he used to let me improvise all the time. Um, oh, yeah, Casualty of War. Yeah, Casualty of War. War. He would let me kind of like add this or that, you know, like not wholesale improvisation like I was doing later but Lassa Hallstrom when I did What's Eating Gilbert Grape he just let me go off he was just, <laughs> it was so freeing and then by the time I met Paul Anderson um, uh, you know I was I realized like this is a great way to work that said I still like I really like it when a script is really well written and a director insists on the script being the script um when well, the script is not well written and people insist that you do the script, that's kind of a nightmare. <laughs> uh, but most smart people, when something's coming out clunky or it's hard to memorize, that's that's always like a, a little like canary in the coal mine thing with, with dialogue. If you can't memorize it for some reason, it means that it's not written right. It's well, not written in a in a rhythm that's natural to human thought and speech. You know? But what's... So I get all that, but what's weird is that you can also dive into this McKay Farrell world. Yeah, where McKay is just thing. like riff, 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 go, 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 which is complete opposite from sticking to a script. Oh, right. Yeah. The opposite of that. Yeah. Because uh, there's not that many people who can do both at the highest level. Name you know? one besides well, me. So Catherine Hahn, she exactly. was on here. Yeah. Okay. She, I'll, we, I'll she's a friend of the pod. That. But she's another one. She can do, she, she has this in, whole path and she oh can God. do the improv. I'll never and the forget when she came in to audition for Step Brothers and I, they asked me to come and, you know, because I had to be so intimate with her. I have these yeah. crazy sexual <laughs> scenarios with her and stuff. Uh, they asked me to come in, just make sure that, you know, the chemistry was good and stuff. And I would just remember like my hair bits being blown back. Yeah. I was like, I hadn't, I hadn't met a woman. Other than Molly Shannon up to that point, who could do what Will and I were doing, you know, who were, who was willing to be as chaotic right. and just jump in both feet and just, who cares? It doesn't matter what, you know, like, it doesn't matter what was planned. We'll just find something, you know? And she was just dazzling. Catherine was dazzling that first audition. I was like, holy crap. <laughs> and then she just, her ferocity, you can see it in the movie. She's so intense. Like, she would attack these ideas and, oh, my God. It's it's pretty hard to shock me with like with that kind of stuff, <laughs> and she blew me away, man. I mean, she makes my performance in a lot of ways in the movie that that she's so intense. It gave me something to play off of, you right? Know? So I just saw her. She was in this Netflix movie about this couple trying to get pregnant with Paul Giamatti. Mm -hmm. Just a dramatic movie, and it's like 
she's doing the dramatic route. And then like you stepbrothers will come on two hours later and she's <laughs> uh, a maniac. But I w- I've always been impressed when people were able to do that. Did, what's more fun for you? Because it seems like you love theater too. Oh, what's more fun be- be- between It's like, what's your favorite theater? thing to do? Because you, well, you have like these three paths that you can kind of veer down at any time. Wait, what, what are the three? Well, you have theater. Film, comedy. You uh, have comedy. And then you have like these serious dramatic movies. Oh, right. Well, it's all the same to me. I mean, I'm just trying to be as honest I can as I can be from moment to moment and really plug in and believe the circumstances that the character is in and really make it feel personal and real. So it's all character driven. Pretty much. Or it's like, it's basically the same thing I was doing when I was eight years old in that improv class. Like, yeah, you just suspend your disbelief and you, and then if the circumstances you're in are ridiculous, then you're in a comedy. And if they're not ridiculous, then you're in a more dramatic thing. But in terms of what I'm doing to get myself to feel like I believe what's going on, it's really similar to like, I remember like (laughs) in that first acting class, there's this amazing guy named Jim Morley, who was my very first uh, theater kind of teacher or whatever when I was a kid. And he's like, okay, everyone lay down on the floor. Now we're all going to be pieces of bacon, okay? Everyone's <laughs> on the floor. You're just an uncooked piece of bacon, okay? Now you're in the pan. I'm turning up the heat. What happens to bacon when it, the pan gets hot? And all of a sudden we start like <laughs> bubbling around like piece, pieces of bacon. And I remember like it was literally the first thing we did in that class. And I remember going, my people, like I found my people like that. I looked around the room and I was like, oh, everyone's into this as much as I am. I found my people. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. Because before that, I was I was kind of, I don't know, I was sort of this like Zelig character. I would kind of shift between groups from the yeah. burnouts to the jocks to the, you know, and mostly I was just really mischievous, like kind of breaking windows and whatever, drinking wine on the railroad tracks at 11 years old and yeah. stuff like that. And theater and, and acting gave me like a, a way to be mischievous that was positive and productive and didn't involve getting arrested. <laughs> was there was there an energy in Chicago in the 80s because it was like the Belushi-Murray like the decade before? That Belushi and Bill Murray were more like people who were more into comedy were really, I mean, of course I... I revered those guys as much as anybody, you know, Animal House and Meatballs and all those kind of stripes and all those amazing movies those guys did. But by the time I got into college, like in in the 80s, like I graduated high school in 83, by the time I got into college, I was like, I, I saw improv as a thing that was, that had infinite possibilities. Yeah. It wasn't just about getting the laugh. And there was a whole kind of movement in Chicago at Second City and Improv Olympic and places like that with very talented Tina Fey, Adam McKay, Steve Carell, like you name it, Stephen Colbert, like all these people. Yeah. So I'm not saying, I'm not saying it as a criticism, but those guys were more chasing the laugh. Their job every night was get the audience to laugh. And when I got involved in improv and acting school, it was, no, just go there. Even if you end up crying or you end up in an angry thing or whatever, just improv is a improv means like really letting go, not knowing at all what's going to happen next. So um, the people I was revering at that time were like John Malkovich, Gary Sinise, oh, yeah. and all the Steppenwolf guys, Billy Peterson, who was at the Remains Theater at the time. Like 
those were the titans in my world. Like I remember Malkovich just like being so inspiring. <laughs> he did this production of Curse of the Starving Class, the Sam Shepard play, which I also did in college eventually. But I remember like the rumor was like Malkovich peed on stage every night for real. Because <laughs> there's this one part where the brother in that play deliberately pees on his sister's drawings to yeah. mess with her. And when I did it in in college, I had this little bladder thing inside my pants so I could fake it. And we were just like, Malkovich did it for real. Malkovich <laughs> peed on cue in front of an audience every night. Like, it's amazing. Like, so that was like my Lawrence Olivier. So your first movie, it's Brian De Palma, it's Sean Penn, and it's Michael J. Fox. Mm-hmm. Like, those were three titans. This is your first job. Yeah, it was the first time I had been on an airplane. It was the first time I left the Midwest. The first time you've been on an airplane? Yeah. Really? First time I'd ever been in a movie. First time I've ever been on an airplane. Um, I actually met my wife, who I've been married to now 26 years on that movie. Wow. <laughs> she was working for Sean Penn at the time. Um, yeah. And so Sean, between Sean, Brian De Palma, and Art Linson, the producer of that movie, that those guys are really the famous, reason I'm He wrote here. a famous book, Art Linson. Yeah. He wrote a book about like his whole experience. It was one of the better Hollywood books. Yeah. Um, he's an amazing guy. Um, and those guys believed in me. You know, I was originally cast as a just one day's work on that movie. And then someone got fired and they moved me up to a cameo part, which was like a whole big, nice scene. And then someone else got fired <laughs> and I got moved into the one of the leads of the movie because I had been so committed in rehearsal, you know, like. A lot of the guys in that movie were trying to like out macho each other and yeah. and trying to out Sean Penn, Sean Penn, you know. And I was like, "You're out of your minds! Like this guy's a brilliant actor. Why would you want to be more? What aren't we? Aren't we like playing make believe here? Why are you guys trying to out drink? You know, and out out wanna, macho out, Sean yeah, Penn? Yeah, like this is just stupid. Like let's just. So a couple of those people got fired, and um. And yeah, and, and based on my commitment and really my theater background, because when we were doing these rehearsals in the room for that movie, on, when we first got together in these conference rooms in Thailand, I was just like, yeah, well, you know, I got this tiny little part, but if you need me to do anything else, I'm like, yeah, yeah, here, there's this old Vietnamese man who, uh, who, we don't have an old Vietnamese man here today. So John, here, you just read this part. And I would just fully commit to it as if, that was my part, you know, yeah. like, and I guess it was pretty funny. The commitment of it was pretty funny, but then I really, it really, uh, I don't know. I've never really talked to Sean directly about it because I was always kind of really grateful that Sean gave me that leg up and he vouched for me. You know, when, yeah. when Brian made the decision to, I mean, we need someone for this part. Now we fired this other guy. Who are we going to put? Should we cast John Riley? Sean said, yeah, he can do it. You know, he didn't insist that I get the part, but he made it possible for me to get the opportunity. And then I did my second and third movies with Sean also. So I was- Which always, ones were those? I can't remember. Uh, we're No Angels and um, State of Grace. Oh, yeah. And so those movies uh, I also had to audition for and get. And I, I was just, I don't know, I'm a proud guy from Chicago. And part of me was like, I don't want anyone to think that Sean Penn just- gave me this as a favor or he yeah. got me in and made people, I want to be there on my own merits, you know? So I was always really careful, like to keep my relationship with Sean, just professional, you know? And and I realized with Sean, like you're either, <laughs> I was either going to be his peer 
you know, and we were working with people like Robert De Niro and, you know, like, so I realized, okay, I'm not going to be his peer. I'm not, I'm not Robert De Niro. Like, but I also didn't want to be like his bitch. Yeah. You know, I didn't want to be like his boy. His lackey that he yeah, brought there. So movie. I just sort of kept my distance and did my thing and stuck to my guns and did what I knew how to do as an actor and tried to, you know, I, it was important to me to feel like I earned my spot, that it wasn't given to me. But that said, I'm so... I'm just, I wouldn't be sitting here if it wasn't for Sean. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't. He taught me so much about acting in those first three movies and acting in movies in particular. You know? Was he one of the, like in Casualties of War, was he like in character even when you guys weren't filming? Is yeah. he one of those actors? Yeah, he lived in another hotel from everybody. You know, he took this sergeant role, which is a leadership role. You're not meant to socialize with the men. You know, there's all these military dictates about the way you're supposed to behave if you're a sergeant and he he definitely acted well, kinda, like he kind of he changed his face and his voice like he he definitely tried to transform himself a little yeah bit. he does that almost every movie i think but um yeah i remember we we're doing this scene where we were demanding to leave the base because we wanted to go to the whorehouse it's kind of the 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 engine that creates that whole story and we're doing this scene where we're the guard stops and says no you guys can't go to town we have an agreement with the VC. They get the whorehouse tonight. Yeah. You guys can't. And we only have one day of leave and we flip out. And we're screaming at the guard and whatever. And so we're doing the master shot of that scene. And I'm just going for it like, like full on energy, like full commitment. That's how, that's all I know how to do. And Sean, after a couple of takes, he's like, he just leans over. He's like, yeah, you ought to save a little bit for the close up. Remember, like, this is just the master. And I was like, what? <laughs> What you're telling me not to go full out? And I was like, oh, oh. And then I realized, oh, yeah, no, we got like eight more setups of this scene. Yeah. And if I just scream my head off and expend all my energy on this giant wide shot, then when it comes time to actually do the coverage, I'm not, I'm going to be either hoarse or I'm just not going to have that same inspiration as I had. It's like an athlete. Like you don't want to burn out in the first five minutes of the game. There's another Sean Penn trick that he taught me. He was like, if you are on a, I just, he didn't tell me this. I just know it from watching him work. We're doing scenes in State of Grace, and he's on the telephone, and there was this whole thing like, hold on, we're not ready to shoot at the telephone booth yet because Sean's character is calling somebody and is having this phone call, and we're not ready to shoot. We have to get the other line set up. Like, what, what do you mean, other line? What are you talking about? Like, Sean, his uh, assistant is going to be on the phone so that when he calls from that payphone, there's someone on the phone. It's not the other actor who's in the scene with Sean, but it's going to be someone else on the other. And it's the greatest acting trick ever. Because if you can see it now, if, next time you watch a movie, look, when someone's on the telephone, you'll know immediately whether there's someone on the other end of the line or whether they're faking it. Even the greatest actors, it's very, very hard. Because there's all this unconscious behavior that happens when you're on the phone that you're not doing intentionally, you know? Yeah. You're listening and you're trying, and this information is coming in your ear and going in your brain. So, and it's very, very hard to fake. And so Sean just showed me, like, just have someone on the other end. It's a little bit of a pain in the ass for production. Like, it takes a little bit more time to set that up, but it pays dividends like yeah. you wouldn't believe. Yeah. So, Smart. Anyway. So then you go from free, that. A little free tip for actors out there. That's a good one. <laughs> Let's take a break to talk about FanDuel. Football season is underway, and I already have major regrets about my daily fantasy performance this season. And it's getting that way, too, with my season-long fantasy teams. Jay Ajayi went out for the year. What am I going to do? I don't have a running back. Well, the good news is I still have daily fantasy 
I am so excited to be playing on FanDuel all season. You get the excitement of researching and building your team each week, regardless of the outcome. Plus, FanDuel has never been more fun or easy to play. I've been playing in their Gridiron Pick'em Contest every week. It's a free contest. All you need to do is pick winners, no spreads, 10K split amongst the top pickers. I can't brag about my other FanDuel performances in the single entry contest because I have been terrible all year. Maybe this will be the week it turns around. I've tried other DFS sites before. If you're not a fantasy expert, FanDuel clearly the place to play. Plus, new users get a $5 bonus when they make the first deposit. Come play with me at FanDuel.com slash BS. Then you have Johnny Depp and Leo. Yeah. Leo was 17 years old when we did What's Eating Gilbert Grape. Yeah. He turned 18 on that movie. He's amazing in that movie. That yeah, movie is really good. Oscar but he's like, so. Yeah. I mean, it's like, <laughs> it was one of those movies between that and this boy's life. You just go, all right, Leo's going to be in yeah. my life now for you know, 40 years. All, uh, he's the only person, and he did it when he was 17 years old, the only person who's ever in my opinion, done a successful impression of me. Really? Yes. And he just did it on the fly, right to my face, around the set of Gilbert Grubb. I was like, you little shit. Like, it was incredible. I mean, Leo is really, I don't even think people have seen half the stuff he can do. He's got amazing moves. He's an amazing mimic for human behavior. And anyway. I thought he was so good in The Revenant. Do you see that? Oh, my God. Just killed it in that movie. Well, when when uh, Paul Thomas Anderson was here, we were talking about the fork in the road where he was almost the Boogie Nights, the Mark Wahlberg party, yeah, turned it down. Leo down and was like, listen, man, I know they're telling you to do this Titanic movie, <laughs> but that movie is about a boat that sinks, yeah. and everyone knows the boat sinks. Yeah. But where's the drama? No one's going to give a shit about the people on that boat. Okay, it's about the boat. It's a famous boat story. Okay, <laughs> come and do Boogie Nights with us. He's like, ah, I don't know. I guess so. I'm not sure. And then, <laughs> whatever. He, we 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 all made the choices we made, and I don't think Leo has any regret. It's definitely that movie. He actually, ironically enough, he said he did regret it. Oh well, there you go. He said like I didn't a year speak ago. For him. <laughs> no, he said like a year ago. It was it was the his one regret with the decision. Now, well, I, I think- tried to warn him. <laughs> you try to tell him. I think no, he has conflicted movie, thoughts listen, about Titanic. Titanic did though. great things for him and allowed him to do all kinds of stuff. You know, Boogie Nights. It, it could have done the same great things for him, but maybe not. You know, like See, definitely I, a lot more people saw Titanic than Boogie Nights. Oh hell yeah! I think he was kind of paralyzed by Titanic a little bit. I think that's why he was looking back like, ah, eh, maybe that's not a great thing because that movie was so big. Yeah, it's almost like he became too famous from it, and he had to kind of scale it back because he's like you he cared about doing the work you know and it was like when you become that famous it's really hard to operate in the world well the next time i, I give him advice i him. hope he listens to me <laughs> <laughs> i think it would have been really interesting him as- i was totally wrong about titanic by the way <laughs> i i was totally gonna say wrong. yeah People were definitely interested in what happens in that movie. And it wasn't about the boat. Yeah, but even when they were making the movie, people were saying that it wasn't going to do well. Oh, my God, this could be one of the biggest bombs ever. Why are they doing this? It's so expensive. Nobody knows. Yeah. Nobody ever knows. Oh, well. Yeah. And then you got to work with Mark Wahlberg, who also became a giant famous actor. I know. What's what's the pro- what's my problem? I keep making these famous actors by the people I work with. It seems like you're catching, you caught a lot of people at the right times. Now, like somebody like Costner was already super famous when you worked with him, but especially the first part of your career, you, you were hitting all these people at good points of their career, which is nice. Yeah. 
Boogie Nights. Um, when did you know that was gonna? I mean, obviously the script was amazing, super ambitious. There's a million characters. They're shooting it in like sixty days. Was there any point in that where you're going? I don't know. This might this might have been too ambitious. No. By the time we did Boogie Nights, I was so deep in Paul's camp. You know, he and I were like thick as thieves by that point. I was as true a believer. You know the way Reed Rothschild is yeah. with, with Dirk Diggler in that movie? That's the way I was with Paul. <laughs> I would do anything for Paul. I yeah. still would. I still would do anything for Paul because I, I believed and do believe in him so much. Like that was someone I could really be loyal to because I, he was just a genius. And I knew what we were doing was very difficult. And we had, look, we had a whole, almost a year of people saying, no, 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 no. No one wanted to touch this whole porn idea. Oh, porn stars are, you know, that's dirty and blah, blah, blah. Now the whole world has turned into porn. <laughs> right. <laughs> but back then, believe it or not, it was really hard to get someone to play that part because most people in Hollywood, the agents and those types were, and I think including Mark's agent or manager or somebody was like, yeah, maybe you shouldn't do this. And then Paul and I had to convince him. We brought him in, me and Phil Hoffman and Mark all improvising together and stuff. And it was clear it was going to be a lot of fun. But I knew like that movie was so much fun and was felt so subversive and so crazy that I knew like we got something good here. Yeah. We, that we better finish this before they realize what they paid for. <laughs> Because this is like, and, and all, all my best work has always felt like that. Like, hurry up and finish before they realize what they allowed us to do, you know? Yeah. And Boogie Nights was definitely that. And then it was a struggle when it first came out to, to get, you know, and Mark wasn't such a huge star then. And, you know, it was. was Burt Reynolds was kind of distanced himself from it initially. And then I think he realized it was. Yeah. And then everyone told him how great he was in it. <laughs> <laughs> When Paul was on here, he was talking about the fight that uh, that the the scene when when Dirk Diggler and um, Jack Horner, the Burt Reynolds character, when they have the fight in the pool, mm -hmm. it's like I'm the biggest star here. I'll tell and yeah. he was saying how some some off the set stuff spilled into that scene because there was like some macho stuff going on with Burt and Mark, yeah. and, and it was like the, one of the only times in his career the stuff that was happening off the set kind of ended up in the movie in a good way. Mm -hmm. But um, I don't know. It seemed like Burt Reynolds was an interesting point of his career. Yeah, you know, God rest his soul, man. That guy. What a run. It yeah, was, it was great run. reading all the and If you look at how, stories how long him. handsome guys last in Hollywood now, like how many years do you really get as being like the sexiest man alive or whatever? It's they like call eight it. to ten. Yeah, and Bert was like on top for like twenty five years or something. He was the and, biggest star when I was a kid. Not all it was great art, you know. Like yeah. It was smoking the band and these kind of like popular popcorn movies. But he was the women. He was the guy women wanted to sleep with for a long yeah. time. And with that, you know, when people tell you you're that, you of course you you come to believe it because yeah. everyone tells you that you're a god, you're, you know, you're macho, you're sexy, you're, you're the top of the heap, you know, like, when you have 20, a 25-year run like that, I don't know if it's actually 25 years, but it was, it was longer than most. It was like, it was like 15, solid. So, yeah, you, I, I would imagine it's pretty difficult to age when you've been living that kind of life. Where me, I look like a 50-year-old guy when I was 18 years old. <laughs> so now I'm just kind of becoming the person I was always meant to be. 
uh, it was weird. Like I was just like an odd looking younger man. Now I'm a, now I'm someone who looks my age. So it's a <laughs> little easier transition Gene, for me. Gene Hackman, they always said that about him too. What, said what about him? Just that he always, it was like, what, what, did, young, what did young Gene Hackman look like? Mm, yeah, you're right. He's always had that <laughs> French connection, Gene Hackman. Yeah, kind of, he just always had that same kind of face. I think he, he started a little late too. He did. I think Gene was older than some of his contemporaries when he, started getting big work man remember him in the conversation and he's so many great movies he had he had like a run and then he had another run and then there was like a 90s run and you yeah. know he always now it's i actually kind of miss gene i don't feel like we filled the gene hackman void there was like a specific type of part that he was always the best at and i don't know who that is i don't though. think that role is there anymore honestly maybe it's not like the enemy of the state with will smith like that role he played in that i don't know who's that person now i just i don't know who the man's man is now well where is that role of that you know like an older guy with gravitas who's like you know i'm not trying to be young and cute and hip i'm just a grown-ass man right who has ideas and who stands for ethical things and whatever you know like like the way my dad was my dad didn't want to dress like me. My dad was not interested in the music. I was, you know, like, I have children now. I'm really curious. What do you listen to? Because there's this sort of pressure to look like a younger person than you are, to be hip with music that's younger than you, to know what's, you know, otherwise you're a square or you're, you know, you're, God forbid, you're old, you know? My dad's generation is like, I don't give a shit what you listen to. I'm a grown-ass man. I wear a suit because I have a, I have achieved this point in my life. Yeah. I worked hard to get here. I'm not trying to be a boy, you know? That's a, there's been a real shift in our mentality that way for men and women. We worship this idea. Everyone wants to be 24 or something or even younger, but uh, this idea that, you know, it, like maturity is something to be avoided or there's no way to age gracefully, like get surgery, you know, get hair implants, whatever it is, do whatever you can to fight the tide, but... That was another generation of guys like Robert Duvall, Gene Hackman, uh, you know. Tommy Lee Jones. Tommy Lee Jones. One take Tommy. All those guys, like, I don't know. It's interesting. Like, there aren't that many roles like that left. I mean, if you look at the amount of business that's done in this town that's cartoons and superheroes, that's about 70% of the business. Maybe 60%. I don't know what the exact number is, but... There's no roles for a Robert Duvall or Robert De Niro or Gene Hackman in a superhero. Although, as, I, as I'm saying that, I realized Gene Hackman played one of the great uh, villains. He Superman, yeah. yeah. he was Lex, Lex Luthor. Luthor, like the greatest Lex Luthor. With so much humor, though, you know? Like, now the villains in those movies are so, like, serious and overly dramatic. Trying to steal the movie. Nothing can be funny. Yeah. Gene Hackman was like this wonderfully chaotic and he was scarier for that reason because he seemed like he was having a great time destroying the world. Anyway, so yeah, the point I'm making is like an old man's point. I sound like an old fart, like back in my day. These movies, these (laughs) days, they don't care about quality. Well, it's true. We had Matt Damon. He was talking about how hard it was to make Manchester by the Sea. Yeah, and how beautiful movie. How worried he is about the the movie that cost fifteen to seventy million, and that was what was so interesting about A Star Is Born, which I saw this weekend. I thought it was really good, and it was you know it's a remake, but it's still not a superhero movie. It's sold yeah. on on look, kind anything, of the merits of their stars. Yeah, look, I said all all power to him, even if it's a remake. 
when you're making we need stories that like tell the human story like we need that's what cinema or movies are supposed to do yes of course there's a, they're supposed to sell popcorn and and make you forget about your life yeah sure there's always a place for those kind of movies but there should always also be a place for movies that affect you as a human being that that make you think about what it's like to be a human being and and grow and you know interesting ideas and stuff that's that's can be hard to watch you know things that are like Manchester by the sea is a perfect example you know like this poor guy's you know kid dies and it's uh it's gut wrenching. It's not something that you go running towards like you'd run towards a superhero movie, but it's vitally important yeah. for for the art form of movies that we that we can experience these things. Well, I'm hoping Netflix and Amazon, because even that movie I mentioned before with Catherine Hahn and Paul Giamatti, the fertility movie, that's a movie that just could not have been made anymore because nobody would have paid for it. But now Netflix seems to be spending money. On- well, it's funny. I have a little bit of a. I don't know. Netflix and those larger streaming companies, it seems like, I mean, it's starting to become, uh, at first it was like, well, you could go to the movies or you could stay home and, you know, watch some of these like second run movies. Now these streaming services are becoming such, they want to be the front of it. Yeah. They want to be the the movie you're watching that weekend on opening weekend. And they want to destroy the distribution business. They want to, reset the clock with they want to like eliminate theaters basically that's netflix i i don't know i can't speak for them but it seems like that's their mo destroy like have people not go to the movies at all have think, them watch it all in their house i don't think theaters can be destroyed you saw it this I don't weekend think so either but stars born in la like you couldn't get a ticket for it you had yeah. to reserve it I know hey, I've got a movie open right now. By the way, I'm well aware of how much money Stars Born is making. Uh, <laughs> no, but so the point I'm making is, like, it's, it's. I don't think Netflix believes that theatrical releases will go away. I think they want to do what Amazon did to bookshops. Yeah, they they want to sell movies at a loss, so that the streaming services become the way you see movies, and they want to destroy those. You know those uh you know the theater chains right and then once they're destroyed go in and buy them and now netflix will own all the theaters because it is true i think at least i really i pray this is true that human beings crave that communal experience of being together in the dark and experiencing you know that's why theater never died that you know like there's something to be said for us getting together it's like it's just like church you know you get together and you we want to feel we want to have a common experience because that Sports is like that too. I think that's the biggest reason. So uh, I just think we're in a bit of a reorganization of of the world in a lot of different ways. But well, I don't want the fifteen million dollar movie to go away. So as long 15, as that sounds like a lot of money or to me. whatever, <laughs> the five to fifteen. Yeah, the you yeah, know the, people these days, you know, the studio guys, they don't want to spend fifteen. They want to spend a hundred so they can make four hundred. Yes, know, like, but yeah, they anyway. think like big businessmen. The uh, when you did. Um, this After is not book- my area of expertise, by the way. Yeah, but this is, you care about art and this is yeah. important because it's going to determine where we go. After Boogie Nights came out, did your life change at all or is it the same? Just going on to the next worlds? You know, every, almost every movie, including the first one I did, Casualties of War, people would say like, well, get ready. Your life's going to change now, man. Oh, wait till people see this. 
including the movies I have out right now. You know, I got Sisters, Brothers, Stan and Ollie, Record Ralph 2, and Holmes and Watson. Like, each time people are like, get ready. And when this is, you know. But I know now after 75 movies or something that I'm still going to be me. You know, I'm still going to have to hustle for work. I'm going to have to find the interesting work. And this is a fickle world, movies, you know? Like, even no, you can't believe that you've attained some golden ring because as soon as you do, like, the audience will remind you, oh, by the way, we, we have right. short-term memories for this kind of thing. Quick break to talk about our friends at Proper Cloth. Finding a dress shirt that fits is nearly impossible. Something is always off, be it the collar or the sleeves, thankfully. Ordering a custom fit shirt has never been easier with Proper Cloth. You can easily create a custom shirt size in seconds by answering 10 simple questions on propercloth.com. Choose from over 20 collar styles, 10 cuff styles, 500 fabric styles, from classic to business to casual. Completely customize your shirt, get the style you want. They work with the best fabric producers from around the world. They only buy fabric that meets their high quality expectations. Each one of their shirts goes through extensive quality control testing, so you're getting the absolute best quality and craftsmanship. Best of all, Proper Cloth guarantees a perfect fit, meaning if somehow your shirt doesn't fit perfectly, they will remake it for free. It is a risk-free process. It's the future of shirts. Shirts made completely custom for you, starting at just $80. Look, stop wearing shirts that don't fit. Just stop. Start looking your best with a custom fitted shirt. Go to propercloth.com slash Simmons today. And if you enter gift code Simmons, you save $20 on your first shirt. Once again, propercloth.com slash Simmons gift code Simmons. Back to John C. Riley. Well, I think your situation is a tiny bit unique because you've made all these movies that are part of people's life. You know, like Step Brothers only been on 10 years and I feel like that's become... And it was funny because, and this is one of the reasons we did the oral history about it on The Ringer. Um, you know, it did well when it came out, but then it just kind of gained steam. And I think the cable, the rewatchability, all that stuff just kind of shoves it to another level and people feel like you're in their life. Yeah. Well, I'm proud of that movie. I'm really proud of that one. High degree of difficulty. Yeah. You basically didn't really have a story and just tried to figure it out other than... The oh, basic we, had, no, we had a story. We had a good story. No, but you story. had to ad lib a, a bunch of We had a pretty good the... script, too. I mean, that's the thing. We improvised a lot together beforehand when we we're writing yeah, together. Yeah, that's what I meant. Yeah, so so we had this kind of great improv-based script already that was very inspiring for other ideas. So, we, yes, we'd improvise a ton, but we always had this great game plan to go back to. But I'm especially proud of that movie because, number one, I put a lot of myself into it, a lot of my childhood stories and a lot of things that happened to me growing up in a big family in Chicago. Yeah. Um, a lot of them. <laughs> and uh, and the other thing I'm really proud about with, this, with Step Brothers is people love it because it's really funny and it's a very broad comedy. But the reason that it's... I think the reason that it's so deep inside people now that it's so ingrained in their kind of DNA is that it seems true. This it's subversive in that way. It tells the truth about family relationships and divorce and yeah. what it feels like to have to have a stepbrother and like all that. Like all that stuff is just emotionally really true in the movie. And then we have giant gags like making people kiss white dog poop or whatever. <laughs> right. But, uh, well, you but and it's Farrow. a basis, but it's a lot of really real emotional stuff. I have a mother who died, you know, right. like, 
it's like it's very real that's that's not like comedy stuff you know you and pharaoh seemed like at that point you'd been together on a few projects and you're just humming at that point well we've done talladega nights together that yeah. was it those guys wanted me to do uh anchorman but i was doing another movie at the time so i, I kind of feel it. like you were an anchorman even though if you even though you weren't it just seems <laughs> like you should have been i'm in the sequel <laughs> they should have cgi'd you into it later this to the cable yeah no that movie didn't need me it's a brilliant <laughs> brilliant movie but uh yeah will and i we definitely hit our stride by the time we did Step Brothers together because we had been working together a lot, building the story of that movie, um, writing it together with Adam. And um, But I have to say, Molly Shannon introduced me to Will. And I yeah. met Molly on a movie called Never Been Kissed, which is fine. It's not, you know, it's not like... First of all, how dare you? It's not my kind of movie necessarily. I have a daughter and a wife who watches all those movies. They love that movie. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not saying anything bad about the movie. It's just in terms of the kind of movies I like. like yeah. And I know that I took that movie at the time because I just had a kid and I was like, yeah, broke, you know, after 30 movies or something, totally broke, <laughs> which obviously did not get very much financial planning training when I was young. But um, so I kind of took it because I was desperate. And then like Molly and I became friends on that one. And it ended up being a really exciting time working on that movie with her. And then I met Will, and I remember thinking, uh, wow, like, as soon as I met him, we shook hands. We were, like, around the west side, and we were going to go have breakfast with him and Molly. And uh, and I remember looking at him like, oh, my God. Like, I did feel, like, related to him or something yeah. right away. I was like, I understand this guy. <laughs> And there's something like right away, like literally the first moment I met him. Yeah. And I didn't know a ton of his work or anything before that. I knew some stuff from Saturday Night Live or whatever, but it wasn't like I was some huge fan. Like I was, I knew him to be a funny guy, but I didn't know him very well. And I just remember just really clicking like, wow. Like, and I still feel that way. Will and I are still good friends. Could you have been a cast member or is it too, because you hosted it once. Could you have, could you have done that? Could you have been on the Will Ferrell cast for three years? Or is that something, something you never would have wanted to do? It's not something I was ever interested in doing, but I don't know. I, I'm i a little bit, I'm kind of like, uh, I'm not a, you have to be like a loyal, really loyal, obedient person, I think, to be, to succeed on that show. Because you know, it's so a, structured? Yes, because there's this whole legacy that comes before you. So it's not necessarily about you. You're filling a role within this legacy of this show. And this is how the show works. And these are the people who control it. And you do your bit. And like, and there's so much competition and all that. Like, I don't know. Like when I did host it, I felt like, I don't know. I might not, I might not thrive in that, you know, like, um, I always end up mouthing off or something, you know, <laughs> like, I don't know when to keep my mouth shut. Kind of. What was it like? Uh, you did Chicago, which, mm-hmm which was a big hit, but that was musical. And I think people like me were surprised that you were in a musical, but meanwhile you had had this whole background with it. Yeah. I grew up doing musicals. Yeah. <laughs> so you flipped it on people. Well, they're like, John C. Riley. He's in yeah. Chicago. What? I didn't know he could sing. What the hell? Yeah. I was really proud of that one because it took me a long, when I went to acting school at DePaul, you know, the, my thinking was at the time, like, well, musicals are not serious. You know, musicals are not what actors, real yeah. actors do. You know, Robert De Niro doesn't do musicals, although he did. Yeah, uh, he did. Uh, so I thought of it as this kind of silly thing. 
was less than dignified for a, a se- excuse me for a serious actor. As that opportunity came to me, I realized like, oh my God, not only is this what real actors do, this is an amazing art form. This is one of the few art forms that Americans can really call their own. You know, yes, sure, it's maybe based on musical of England or whatever, but yeah, you know, or opera or whatever you want to call it. But the musical, the um, the contemporary musical, was created in America, and it's our opera. You know, we got jazz, we got baseball, we got musicals. Yeah, you know, everything else is pretty much derived from England or Europe or now we have hip hop. I would add hip hop. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's true. I mean, in a way, hip hop is an extension of jazz to me. True. But yeah, definitely. Um, so I, I realized when I got that opportunity with Chicago, like, wow, this is like, not only is this what real actors do, this is like a sacred opportunity to get to like, and it felt like such a great return to my roots. And I knew exactly what to do with that character. And um, yeah, I just remember just so many emotional moments behind the scenes on that movie, just becoming overwhelmed with uh, emotion, thinking about how, how amazing the, that experience was and, and what a gift it was and how foolish I was in college to think like serious actors don't do musicals. You, Stupid. <laughs> you've had, well, you've headlined a bunch of movies too. Cause it, there was a time there when it was like, Oh, he's a character actor. He'll be one of those guys who bounces around. Well, he's as like a, the as a famous agent once said to me, as I was trying to like, get to another level or get larger roles or something. Or like I was asking this very powerful guy at this agency, like, what do I got to do? You know, how do I get the shot to be a lead in one of these movies? Like, meanwhile, I don't look like the kind of guy that a studio is going to cast in a lead. So there's that. But this, this agent looks at me and he's like, John, you're a very expensive character actor. I was like, damn. Like sometimes when you get that bracing truth from Hollywood business types, you're like, fucking hell. Okay. I'm an expensive character actor. Like, well, that either means I got to lower my price or, <laughs> or I have to, uh, or I got to work on getting l- larger parts because there's, there's not much future for an expensive character actor. Well, I think Philip Seymour Hoffman was like that too. He was, there was this whole new class of actors that were coming up that were being kind of typecast you know, as Phil, the character actors. You know, the way I was just describing, like, where are those guys, those men? Yeah. You know, like with gravitas who are like, I'm not a boy, I'm a man. And I have, you know, like Phil was one of those guys to me. Phil was like, like a lion, you know, real. He had real gravitas. And you did, was Boogie Nights the first time you worked with him? No, he was in Hard Eight. Oh, that's right. Yeah. 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 And I'll never forget the first time I heard about Phil. <laughs> Paul Anderson said to me, I met the next John C. Riley. <laughs> I was like, fuck you. How dare you? And then I met Phil. I was like, God damn it. Here we go. I'm going to be chasing this guy for the rest of my life. And uh, when you saw what he was doing with Scotty, we were like, oh man, he's really going for this. Yeah, all of it. Even in Hard Eight, you know, he just had one scene at the craps table, but you're like, wow, the bravado that he brought in. But boom, like no one knew who the hell he was. And he just like slayed in that scene. Um, and then he and I went on to do True West on Broadway together. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Didn't you like alternate parts back yeah, and forth? Yeah, we switched the roles every three performances. So sometimes like we do a matinee one way and the evening performance the other way. That was really fun. It was like one of, the, one of my proudest moments of my whole life, getting to do that with Phil every night. Were you, were you friends with him or you just work buddies? 
Yeah, we're friends. Yeah. I mean, everyone who, who was in kind of Paul's repertory company, whether it was Bill Macy or yeah. Philip Baker Hall or Phil Hoffman, we were all friends for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, that said, sure, uh, Phil lived primarily. I don't think he ever lived out here, actually. But oh, he's always he New primarily York. lives in New York, and yeah. I, I eventually moved out here. So it wasn't like we were spending a lot of time socially together. But I, I always held Phil in the highest esteem. Like he was an incredible, incredible actor. Have you worked with anybody younger generation who you feel like has a chance to get to that? Like what we're talking about? Oh, gosh, anybody in your twenty in their twenties or <laughs> this something? Is I, this is when I sound really old, and I tell you, I don't know anyone in the younger generation. <laughs> Next generation. Well, you've been in a lot now, of movies. I worked though. with uh, I worked with this guy Thomas Mann, uh, yeah. who's in Skull Island with me, Kong Skull Island. The whole Simmons family liked that movie. Oh yeah, Kong's oh, good. oh yeah. yeah. I'm really proud of that one too. I really, I <laughs> love that movie. That movie. <laughs> I had to play a Cubs fan, unfortunately. Yeah. But, uh, I'm from the South Side, and White Sox is sort of in my DNA. But uh, yeah, so Thomas Mann is a younger guy that I I was really impressed with. Um, well, what, gosh, who else? <laughs> Name some people. I'll tell you. I don't know. I, I should have brought a list. <laughs> what happens to the Paul Thomas Anderson Repertory Company? Because now he's spends like two, three years making these. I thought Phantom Thread was incredible. Yeah, I, I was like, I but it, I I still want to see him occasionally do like the fun, not so serious movie, and I think he kind of wants to do it. Like he didn't yeah. like rule it out, you know, but he kind of just drifts toward these mega drama projects now. Well, yeah, well, I think you just have to be honest with yourself and really do what you are are interested in from moment to moment, and can't do things because someone wants you to do work like you used to do or whatever, you know, you have to just do what you are. I honestly think he wants to do it to. though. I think he wants yeah, to absolutely. do like something with more. Although I, I thought Phantom Thread was really funny, but it wasn't like funny the way Boogie Nights was funny. You know, it was yeah. like two different types of. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. You know, like I wouldn't, I wouldn't counsel Paul to do anything differently. I think he, I mean, there's, he's, he's really up there. When was the last time you worked with him? Uh, Magnolia. But, um, you know, when you look at what he did with Phantom Thread, not only did he direct that movie and write that movie, and he did, had to direct Daniel Day-Lewis, who is like yeah. not a picnic to direct. He's <laughs> right. a very intense guy. <laughs> I've worked with him. He did Gangs of New York with yeah, him, right? Yeah, he's an intense guy. Like, you you got you to gotta show up at 110% every single morning with him, or he'll just you know, eat you for lunch. Yeah. Um, so Paul not only wrote and directed that movie, he was the director of photography on that movie and he was the camera operator on that movie. I mean, that, I mean, all due respect to the other filmmakers that were noticed. Was it last year the movie came out? Yeah. All due respect to the other filmmakers who were noticed that year, but nobody did what Paul did on that movie. I, I, I finished that and I was like, I remember like looking, I didn't even know he shot it. I was visiting, I was working in London at the same time as he was. And I hung out with him. We'd go see uh, dailies and stuff. And I remember him being really involved with the dailies, talking about the color timing and, you know, they're making change. And I was like, why is he so like micromanaging the photography? And then I, after I saw the movie, I was like, God damn, he, he did all of that. And just to, just to be the director and direct Danny Day-Lewis in a part that, that was as intense as that part, that is a massive undertaking. But to, but to park yourself behind the lens and be in charge of making sure the camera's going the right way. Like, it's amazing. He I mean, didn't it just, really was He should have just virtuosic. made the costumes, too. He should have just done everything. 
Well, they sewed, sewed all the dresses. Yeah, I'm sure he had a lot to say about the costumes. There's nothing in Paul's movies that's not there because he didn't because he didn't pick it. You know. All right, let's go through the new movies you have. You have four. Yeah. So, what do you want to talk about first? Whatever you want to talk about. No, tell me. Tell me How about each we one. Four more hours. No, we're we're, uh, we're wrapping up. The Sisters Brothers. The Sisters Brothers. Yeah. Or the publicist must have overheard us and said, no, no. I think hey, they the were going to talk about the, the I Sisters know. Brothers. You this, I have a whole process. <laughs> uh, yeah. Sisters Brothers is a movie that I produced with my wife, Allison Dickey. We bought the rights to this book that was written by Patrick DeWitt seven years ago. Okay. Um, and we promised Patrick that we'd make the best movie we could uh, from his book. And then we got this French director, Jacques Odiard, involved, and Jacques took it on. And, um, you know, he did The Prophet and Rust and Bone. Yeah. When the Palm Door for D-Pan. Anyway, he's like one of the greatest filmmakers also out there working right now. And, um, yeah, it's in theaters now. And it's a pretty incredible movie, I must say. Not just I'm not speaking for myself. I'm talking for what Jacques did with the genre. What he does with the Western in the Sisters Brothers is really, really interesting. He stays ahead of you the whole time. You never know what's going to happen. There's all this intensely emotional stuff going on between me and Joaquin Phoenix. He plays my brother. We're hired killers in 1851 in San Francisco and the Pacific Northwest. And we're hired to go find this guy and kill him. And along the way, we start to have doubts about, wait, who is this guy? What did he do? Why should we kill him? And, and also, we've been killing people for a living since we were little kids. And we're starting to have this, like, identity crisis you know so the movie is um i don't know it's a real it's a really deeply satisfying movie you know i was saying earlier about how you know a lot of these movies are are just there to entertain you now i've watched i watched a movie on the plane on the way back from europe recently big superhero movie and it was good it made the it made the flight pass by and and i was engaged in it but as soon as that movie was over i couldn't right now i couldn't tell you a single thing of what it was about or what happened yeah i could tell you maybe who a couple of the actors were in it i couldn't tell you a single thing about the plot and it had no resonance in my life afterwards the sisters brothers what people are saying to me when they watch the sisters brothers like wow, like, first of all, holy shit, like, that was a really original take on the Western. I didn't even know that was going on at that time and blah, blah, blah. And I, I liked the movie when it was finished, but I can't stop thinking about it. That it really? keeps expanding in my consciousness and it keeps, like, echoing inside me emotionally about my own relationships and m- the place of men in the world and what is masculinity and, like, all these stuff. Like, it's really resonating with people. So... I really, I know I, every time I go out to sell a movie, I try to urge people to say it, to see it. And I say, please go see it. But I really do hope people go see the Sisters Brothers because it's a pretty special movie. Of all the stuff I've done, it's pretty damn special. That was a great sell job. Thank you. Now, now I'm like, well, I, I'm like out of my mind ready it. to see it. No, that was yeah. awesome. Yeah. I mean, I got a lot of sports to watch. I might still, I'm going to make some time. Okay. This is yeah. a baseball playoffs, NFL, NBA. Know, so I'm still going to make win? time for who's this. Who's going to win? I've known well, the in Cubs the Cubs are out. I know. I don't the care. Brewers the Brewers are somehow in the final four. I was glad the Cubs were out. Brewers are in the final four. joy, like this kind of sadistic pleasure when the Cubs lose, especially when they pan the audience and you see all the Northsiders with their sad <laughs> little faces. Like It makes Southsiders in Chicago so happy. Like Although when the Cubs won, 
unlike many Sox fans, I was actually like, it's a good day for the city. It's a good right. day for the city. You know, but I have lots of people on the South that were like, die, die. Like they were just, they were not happy. Well, you must have loved it when the White Sox won and all the Cubs fans were super resentful. It was literally like the second coming on the South side. (laughs) People had their televisions out on the front yards and the lawn watching watching it as it unfolded. Like people, it was mayhem. I was also there in Chicago when, when Jordan was. Oh, yeah. You know, winning all those championships with the Bulls. But I'm known as the jinx in Chicago. Why? Among my friends. Because the one time, because I'm like the Johnny come lately, you know, like, you know, like in Silver Linings Playbook, when I, all the paranoid thinking about luck and superstition and all that, I'm the guy that messes it up. I'm the guy that says the wrong thing or whatever. Oh, Jesus. Like when the when the Bears won the Super Bowl in 80, was it 86? Yeah. The one game they lost was the game that I went over to my brother-in-law's house. Oh, the Miami house. game. Yeah, yeah, Miami Dolphins. I went over to his house to watch, and they lost. And it was the one time I went over to his house to watch it. And now, I'm still the jinx from that from that one game. You caught Kevin Costner. I kind of believe it. I you, do. You I, caught his perfect game, though. That wasn't a jinx. Yeah. It's a perfect game. Yeah. <laughs> I know where the pitches really landed, Bill. And it wasn't a perfect there. game. You saw the <laughs> secret sauce. Uh, we have to go. You have to go continue to promote oh, this, this movie and your other ones. Should have done great. this a long time ago. This was fun. You're always invited. Anytime if you, you want to come back. You know, a 30 year anniversary of Boogie Nights. You're going to be participate. Yeah, let me know. That'd I'll be amazing. To... I want to get you and Paul Thomas Anderson on together. Oh man, that'd be the dream podcast. Because the would you better, do that? Better set aside a few hours for that one. Because would you do that one? We could so get food. many stories between the two of us. Yeah, we'll do it in like a restaurant. We'll eat and we'll just put we could spend three there. hours just talking about Burt Reynolds, like and the <laughs> stories that happened on Boogie Nights and like. You know, the, just the the craziness that, that went into that performance. You know, that Boogie Nights house was available for sale last I know. year. I saw it. And it he, looked the same. And he was thinking about, Those Paul people, was thinking about buying it. You know, it was this, like, well, what are you going to do West in West Covina? Covina. Yeah, 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 what are you going to do But that? do you know about the people that own that house? No. They were like devout Christians. Oh, no. Devout and Christians. And Boogie Nights there? And they had not changed that house since like 1974. Like, we barely did any set dressing when they went in there. It was like... Almost the same as it was in the 70s. I think it's almost the same now. And then one day, and we and, and they didn't know what the movie was about. The people yeah. that owned it, they didn't, and of course, would never have approved of any kind of porn thing in their house. <laughs> and so there was a day when we, we had summer and rain, those big chested girls. Remember like uh, in oh, the yeah. 80s where Ricky... Uh, Ricky Jay oh, is filming them. It was just, it's just video. We just keep shooting or whatever. And these girls playing with each other in the hot tub and whatever. <laughs> that day, the Christian people that own the house decided, we'll go visit the movie set. Oh, no. And I remember looking out and seeing like this producer, John Lyons, like booking down the driveway, trying to stop them. He's like, well, <laughs> we're actually, uh, uh, you, you know, uh, can I take you out to lunch? You know, <laughs> like desperately trying to keep them from coming in the house. But Oh, yeah, I wonder what they thought of it when it was done. Well, good luck with all. Good luck with your four movies. I bet they got more money for brothers. that house though when they sold it, based on it being it was, Boogie Nights. I gotta say, it was on sale for a while, and Boogie Nights was used as the selling point of the house, and it still was on sale for nine months because we actually had a legitimate conversation about whether the Ringer should buy it and shoot all of our videos from there. But it's too far a long away. Commute, dude. It's like fifty it's minutes. Yeah. yeah. If it was like twenty minutes, we could have done a lot it. of time on the ten. Yeah, it would have been rough in the sixty. John C. Riley, good luck with everything. Thanks for coming on finally. Thanks so much to John C. Riley. Thanks to KOC and Ryan Rosillo. Thanks to ZipRecruiter. Don't forget to check them out at ziprecruiter.com slash BS. 
thanks to FanDuel, where you get the excitement of researching and building your team each week, regardless of the outcome. They have tons of ways to play, like the Gridiron Pick'em Contest. Pick winners, no spreads. That's it. 10K split amongst the top pickers. I've tried other DF sites, and if you're not a fantasy expert, FanDuel is clearly the place to play. New users get a $5 bonus when they make their first deposit, so come play with me at FanDuel.com slash BS. Thanks to Simply Safe. They go on, they go beyond what home security should be. Intuitive design influences every step of securing your home, like installation. Simply Safe ships right to your door, ready to go. It never stops. Simply Safe's built-in backups protect you through power failures, Wi-Fi outages, even baseball bats, all for just $14.99 a month. Order today. You'll get free shipping and free returns. Start your risk-free 60-day trial at simplysafe.com slash BS. That is simplysafe with two eyes.com slash BS. Back on Friday with House. We are doing NBA over-unders. It is happening. Win totals. The whole shebang. You're getting it. See you then.